Welcome to the Fitness FAQs podcast, where we use calisthenics to gain bodyweight strength, build muscle to look like a bodybuilder, and unlock the mobility to move freely. Just to get started, for the people that aren't familiar with your work, can you give us like your elevator pitch of your history? Sure. So I, like a lot of people in fitness, I kind of got lost in the shuffle of the old bodybuilding era back in the nineties when I first got into it, reading bodybuilding magazines. And then later on when the internet came about following a lot of like the, the bodybuilding videos and stuff like that. And I always thought, well, the best way to get in shape is to just endlessly build more muscle and try to be as strong as you possibly can. And so I got lost down a lot of the rabbit holes of, you know, eat several meals a day and make sure you're hitting the muscle from every angle and all those sorts of things. And it was very rewarding and I really enjoyed it, but it started to take a real serious toll on mind, body and lifestyle. Uh, it got to the point, uh, several points, periods of my life where I had serious sacrifices I had to make. Like I remember one girlfriend back in college, literally draw the line in the sand and say, look, it's me or the gym. And I was like, well, I'll see you later. <laughs> and I chose the gym and believing that if I made the ultimate sacrifices, if I just spared no expense, then that was the best way for me to get what I wanted from it. But after about 10, 12 years of that, I started to realize that it, the toll was not worth the results that I was getting. Uh, I was certainly getting somewhere, but I started to instead look more into the ideas of, well, how do I make fitness work? Not from a spare, no expense, uh, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead kind of approach, but instead more of like, well, how would I integrate this more into a bit more of an efficient model? And so instead of asking the question of what quote unquote works, like going through the research and the data and like, does this diet work or does that exercise work? I started to instead ask, well, what is necessary? So is this approach necessary? Does this exercise necessary? And through that lens over the years, I developed a protocol of approaching fitness where instead of going with what was supposedly optimal or the best approach was more of, well, what are the fundamental aspects of building muscle, being healthy, taking care of your joints, what are the fundamental elements that are necessary? And by dialing in and focusing on those, I realized not only does that give you a much faster and more direct track into getting what you want, but it also gives you a lot more freedom and flexibility to eat and train and have basic lifestyle structure that is flexible and adaptive to your situation. So you can literally have your proverbial cake and eat it too. Absolutely great introduction. I like the fact that through your over 10 plus years of, of doing it the extreme way, as a teacher, you've been able to strip away and teach the fundamentals because let's face it, most of the people that are following your stuff, Matt, my stuff with fitness FAQs, they want to be the best version of themselves, but not necessarily optimal elite athlete. And I'm really excited to dive into what fundamentals you've uncovered over the years as we, as we chat. Absolutely. It's really about finding your own path because to get to the best results for you and what you want, sometimes that's not going to be running an ultra marathon or being able to deadlift 500 pounds. Sometimes the best results for you could be having the ability to run 
every day and blow off stress and not have your back and your knees killing you when you wake up in the morning. That could be your best result. It's a little bit different. And I think we need a lot more of an approach in fitness where it's like, go after what you legitimately want, not necessarily what the fitness culture is saying, this is what you need to do in order to consider yourself fit. Yeah, that's the problem with, I guess, digesting mainstream media that's online. It seems to be very, this is the optimal way. This is what's going to achieve best results, but it doesn't factor in, as you just mentioned, what the person's overall lifestyle is and ambitions. It should be, I guess, adding to their life, not consuming their life, I think, for the most part. Exactly. That's exactly the point. Because looking back, fitness was consuming my life. That was my life. Everything else evolved around it. Like that was the proverbial gravitational pull and everything else had to fit around it. And I thought at the time, I want to be the fitness guy. I want to be the person who fitness is his number one thing and everything else is secondary. And what I came to realize is actually, no, like I don't want to be a fitness guy. I don't want to be even these days, you'd say an influencer or whatever. It's like, I just want to be someone who enjoys staying in shape, enjoys a good workout and it enhances all the other things in my life, like having that girlfriend and family time and enjoying a barbecue with my friends and stuff, rather than feeling like I've got to compromise those things in order to be that fitness guy. What advice would you give for, say, personal trainers or, as you said, in air quotes, influencers who might be feeling that extra pressure that they have to be above and beyond to do their job well? Because based on seeing your stuff, Matt, you've got an incredible level with this more balanced approach. How are you managing that, I guess, mentally being, I guess, not quote unquote optimal, still very good? but having a high enough standard to teach your students without stress. Right. It's, it's not easy. Uh, it, I even struggle sometimes with it where I'll let a little of the negativity seep into my soul. And I'm like, but I don't have shredded abs all the time. And I can't do 15 muscle ups on one arm and things. And there is this kind of expectation we sometimes place upon ourselves that we think is coming from the internet, that that's what we, that, people expect of us. And sure, you may get a comment on your video, like, why should I learn from this guy? He doesn't have five Olympic medals or something. But the reality is that we all are following our own path and we're all going after what is our own results. And if you get honest with yourself and you ask yourself, okay, what do I personally really value from my training? What goals are important to me? What methods and approaches are important for me kind of thing? And you're going to enjoy it, but people gravitate towards that. More than anything in this day of influencers and the internet, we still have a lot of respect for people who are just being real. So when someone comes out and they're like, hey, I'll be honest, like I'm a terrible runner. Like, (laughs) you know, when I joke with people and they're like, I just ran a 5K and I'm like, I think I ran 5K over the course of my entire life kind of thing. It's like, what? I'm admitting my faults. I'm admitting that, yeah, running's just not important to me. And being honest with that, but at the same time, showing people, this is what I really, this is really what I find important. That gives them permission to also walk their own path. And that's more the most empowering thing we can do as influencers, not telling people, this is what you need to do, 
but I want to encourage you to do things your way and discover your own values and your own path and your own methods. And I'm here to offer ideas and support, but empowering people rather than, you know, leading people by the hand, I think is the best thing you can do as a coach, a trainer, as an influencer. This is why I wanted to have you on the podcast, Matt, because even straight away, that clarity of perspective is absolute gold. If people switched off now, not that they should, they've got to listen to the whole thing. <laughs> that is just a huge takeaway because we look at fitness. What's Especially you came from the world of bodybuilding. It's purely about what you look like. It's very me versus the world type of vibe. But this is the great part of what you're conveying is that there's that room for authenticity and perhaps humbling yourself in light of what else is being achieved. And I really like what you said about doing that allows everyone else to feel like, oh, I don't have to be perfect. I can still tr- like strive to improve and, and that's okay. And I think that takes a lot of courage, especially as, as a lead up with you know, a lot of people uh, seeing your type of work and stuff. So that's really reaffirming for people that are trying to follow, I guess, your path. And don't worry about like, well, will I be able to have any influence if I don't have the abs and stuff? Look, there are a lot of people out there who don't have the elite level anything, you know, abs, body, performance, whatever. And they are highly respected coaches and they are very sought after and they're very successful and they're very admired. So the whole idea of you have to be or have X to be successful is not true. Living your own truth is much more powerful. And people spot try hard and fakery a mile away. You know, everybody does this. Everybody's like, okay, I'm going to be more like this person, or I'm going to make content like that guy. And I'm going to try to make things, my body look like this person. The second you start doing that, people notice that all, it's like you become a knockoff of someone else's. And I don't know about you, but whenever I see a knockoff product, service, website, or something, it just sets, it, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth because I know you're just copying. I know you're just trying to do, oh, I can do that too. But more importantly, like you have your own strengths and your own values and your own insights. So when you copy, you are essentially holding yourself back. You're not leveling up to that person's level by trying to be like them. You're holding back your own personal potential. So that essence that the world is craving, that people out there, somewhere out there, someone wants your story. They want your perspective and they want your way of approaching things. And by copying someone else, you're denying them that. And that is setting them off, but it's also holding yourself back at the same time. What would you say are the major mistakes, if you will, that you made when you first started CalSnacks? Uh, A couple of the biggest ones. Uh, First off is rep chasing. And rep chasing is basically you're just trying to do more of whatever it is. Uh, More push-ups a day, more pull-ups, trying to just do more uh, volume, in other words. And there's nothing wrong with adding some volume and uh, extra reps. That's certainly a method of progression. But making that the sole focus of how you progress calisthenics is probably the biggest mistake that I made because you start to compromise technique, range of motion, uh, a whole bunch of other things get kind of put on the back burner. And for me, and a lot of other times I've seen this where you sacrifice quality for quantity. So you may feel like, okay, my numbers on my workout log, they're going up, new PR, but that last five 
repetitions was not exactly your cleanest. And not only does that really not do as much as we want as far as creating a stimulus for the growth that we want as far as strength, but it also can compromise things like safety and joint integrity and even performance to a large degree. So that was one. The second one is I would say getting caught in what I call the calisthenics rut. And the calisthenics rut is the mindset where we think of doing like a push-up and a pull-up and a squat a very particular way. Okay, so usually it's a military-style push-up, military-style pull-up, and regular standard bodyweight squat. Great exercises, wonderful. But we have to remember that the way we progress calisthenics, especially progressive calisthenics, as opposed to like weighted calisthenics, is we move on to more advanced techniques. And so when we get caught in the rut of thinking this is a standard push-up, this is the standard squat and stuff, and that's what you're primarily doing, that's kind of like going into the gym, always having 135 on the bench press. And that's the only weight you use for months and maybe even years on end. And you could be like, yeah, I'm getting more reps and everything, but everybody around you would be like, yeah, but you're still at 135. Put more weight on the bar kind of thing. So branching out the mindset of there's many different types of push-ups, there's many different types of doing pull-ups and so on. And not that those moves come out of your repertoire, but when you have a workout, when you're getting stronger and you're doing like archer push-ups or something, and you're like, this is my primary push-up mode for my workouts at this time. This is like 80% of what I do. This is the way I do it. In order to keep demanding more from your body is key. And if you get stuck in the rut of thinking this is how push-ups are done, the standard push-up, then you just don't build off of that and move to more advanced techniques. And then the third uh, and final thing that I think I got really uh, crossed off with was just having too much of a overthinking approach to programming and routines. Like, okay, should, should I do a split routine? Okay, if it's a split routine, should it be upper body, lower or push and pull? Or what, what if, okay, hang on, where, where does the, the handstands go in that? And it's just overthinking the thing like crazy. Whereas instead, uh, I should have taken approach more of like, okay, here are the fundamental movements and exercises. Now, how can I do them uh, like a couple times a week so I can rest and recover and make progress, but also fit my schedule? Because a lot of things that make a good workout routine work is just can it fit within your, your schedule? Can you fit the time in? Can you recover well between workouts? Does your leg training not interfere with your weekly ski outing and stuff? A lot of programming is just personal variables like that and not paying attention to that, but instead going online, going like, okay, should I work legs? Okay, everybody's like chest day on Monday is for bros and everything. So everyone knows to be really hardcore. You got to do squats on Monday. So I do squats on Monday. Never mind the fact that I spent all day Sunday hiking up mountains, backcountry skiing. My legs were shot. I was like, why are you squatting on Monday? Like, that's the last day you want to be squatting. You put it later on in the week. But I was so caught up in what is the best routine that I was ignoring listening to what my body wanted and how I should program around my schedule instead. Great three observations. And I see that one so often with the paralysis analysis with programming. As you said, a succinct way to look at it is it's just a way of organizing what you need to do in a week. And spreading that accordingly to fit your lifestyle is, is absolutely key. Absolutely. I tell people a lot, I was like, think of your muscles like a nail and sticking out of the board, you know? It's like, 
okay, when you're working out, we're trying to figuratively hit our muscles, you know, just hit the nail, drive it in. Okay, so if you have a nail sticking out of the wall and you keep catching on your shirt and stuff and you got to drive it in, does it matter if you drive it in on a Tuesday or a Thursday? You know, does it matter if you hit it five times, then you go and you, you know, make out with your girlfriend and then you hit it in another five times to make sure it's flush? Like, no, it's like just hit the darn thing enough so that it gets the job done. And organizing your schedule so that it works for that is the best way we can get the results. And in line with what you were saying with the variation concept, Matt, I noticed that you've been a bit popular over the years for promoting more of a narrow grip for calisthenics exercise. So narrow grip push-ups, narrow grip pull-ups. I'd love to hear an explanation why. Yeah. So when I first got into calisthenics, I you know went on to YouTube, which was kind of a new thing at the time. Like YouTube had been around, but it wasn't like the everyday popular thing uh, at that point. So when I started getting into it, I was like, I wonder if there's anything on YouTube about calisthenics videos. And so I found some of the old original stuff that was first posted there. And uh, uh, the uh, Hannibal for King uh, videos came out and I was first looking at it like, okay, one, the guy looks amazing. Two, the guy performs amazing. I want those two things. And so much of his stuff was narrow and it kind of got a little gear in the back of my mind going like narrow close. Cause at the point uh, I was like, everything on barbell was as wide as possible as wide stance. What? Cause that allowed me to just lift more weight. And I was like, narrow, narrow, what narrow. Okay. What, why is that familiar? And then I realized like so much of my martial arts training was here, you know, keep it close in, keep it tight in, you know, sort of thing. Whenever we go outside, we're losing leverage. Uh, against striking uh, in many cases. So I started going more narrow. And at the time I had a lot of joint issues, uh, wrist, elbow, shoulder, lower back, knees, ankle, toe. I mean, I, all sorts of joint issues. And I, I noticed as I was getting in closer, I was able to take a lot of the stress off my joints, but more importantly, my muscles were working a lot harder. And I was like, well, okay, less pain, more gain let's go more with this type of approach. And ever since then, it's just been my ground zero. Plus when it comes to a lot of the progressive calisthenics techniques, eventually you get to the point where you're dominantly using one arm or leg, in which case you're almost always using that very close to your center line. So that kind of just clued me in. It's like, well, if I'm gonna primarily be doing things close to my center line with one limb, then I'm just going to kind of make that my general MO and not that wide isn't bad. I still use it to some degree, but it's not what I use most of the time because I feel like it's just more challenging and we get more out of keeping things nice and tight. It's interesting. This is where the people that are growing up with the internet in the current era wouldn't appreciate what we would have had to go through Matt. So we had to source our knowledge through, it wasn't even instruction. As you said, it was just seeing someone training and you had to have the, the smarts to be like, oh, why? And just inquire, experiment, and take it from there. But I like that point that you made with respect to being closer to the midline for narrow grip and the really clear way of how that translates to advanced calisthenics is we have tucked elbows with most of the stuff that we're doing. So you take, for example, freestanding handstand push-ups, it's going to be more efficient to do them with tucked elbows when you lean forwards. As you said, when you're doing uh, pulling movements like a one-arm pull-up, 
that's going to be a more tucked elbow close to the midline. So there's definitely merit for what you're saying with the, the close grip technique. But by bringing things in more narrow, now I'm much more direct. And it's just that power goes directly into what I'm looking for from a sport and functional application. Today's sponsor for the show is Fitness FAQs. Use the coupon code PODCAST10 to save 10% at checkout when shopping on fitnessfaqs.com. Enjoy the discount and let's get back to the conversation. A random question for you, Matt. This is a common one that I found on the internet, so I thought I'd just ask you and get your opinion. Why are calisthenics guys skinny? Skinny. Well, I think a lot of us just gravitate towards any sort of physical activity we have a natural proficiency for. Back in the day when I was a bike racer, uh, like everybody on that team was skinny because when it's all about weight to power ratio, the lighter you are, the better you're going to be at it. And there was one guy on the team the first year there, and he was built like uh, almost a linebacker, like well over 200 pounds, pretty heavy set guy. And he wanted to get into cross country mountain bike racing. And I think he lasted about two weeks before he's like, there's no way. Like I am horrible at this, trying to haul a 230 pound body up a hill on mountain bikes. Meanwhile, you've got guys who are skinny and weigh maybe 120 and they're flying up. It's like, no. So we naturally will try different things in life and we'll find some things. It's like, okay, this is a real struggle. And it's not for me. And we, so we go away from it, but other things they'll be like, Oh, I'm kind of good at this. Oh, Hey, you got a front lever, dude. That was amazing. How long did it take you? Oh, it only took me three weeks. Really? That's amazing. You mean I'm good at something. And so we gravitate towards these things. And so this is one of the biggest myths in our fitness culture in general is that the bodies that you see, especially at an elite level are the product of the training. When in reality, their advancement in that is largely based on the body they started with to begin with. And so you've seen this, I'm sure it's like, look, this is what the body of a marathon runner looks like. And this is body of a sprinter. And so therefore, if you want to look big and jacked, you got to sprint. I'm like, I guarantee if it took that marathon runner and made him do sprints, he'd still look largely like he still does now. It wouldn't really change all that much. And I think a lot of that just boils down to exactly that. But there are certainly heavy set guys in the calisthenics world uh, they just typically don't do a whole lot of the more sport athletic style of calisthenics. I always cite one of my earliest uh, influences is before I was into calisthenics and it was the light bulb going on in the back of my head when I did. I knew a guy by the name of Mark uh, back in the day and Mark was huge. He was an absolute beast. He literally would walk in the gym and people would be like, dude, who the heck is that? Like, he has got to be someone, a pro bodybuilder, pro athlete. I mean, this physique was awe-inspiring in every way, shape, and form. Funny enough, though, he was actually homeless. So he would use the gym for showers and things like that. So people would be like, he's got to be on steroids. I'm like, I guarantee you he's not on steroids. <laughs> he couldn't afford you know, lunch the other day. He's not on steroids. But he was massive. But he, his whole thing was push-ups, pull-ups, and dips straight there. And that's what he did. And that was it. But he was jacked. So it's kind of a little bit of a, a filtering mechanism. When people become good at something, especially now with social media, we tend to gravitate our attention towards the extreme examples of performance. And the extreme examples are, of course, going to come from the people who are built for that type of performance. 
But there are a lot of people who are not on the extreme ends of the example for the performance, but they're good size. They don't have the ideal body for calisthenics, but they don't care. They're in the park blasting out pull-ups and getting the job done and they look great and amazing. It's just, they don't have that wow factor that drives the algorithms because they're not doing, you know, planches on the edge of a cliff. And so people don't hear about them very much. Working hard versus working smart. How would you go about working smart, still getting results, but not burning yourself out in the process? Well, the first step is to kind of question this idea that it's stress that changes the human body. We all kind of grew up with the notion of why do we build muscle? Why do we get in shape? Well, you take your body and you stress it and you break it down and you, you, you force it to basically get hurt on a micro or cellular level. And then it's got to heal itself in recovery. And then you have super compensation where it goes a little bit above and that's how you get in shape. We need to do away with that attitude because it is certainly possible to beat your body to a pulp and not get very far at all. I've done it for years myself, big regret, because fundamentally it's not stress that changes the body. If it was, then we'd all have great results because it's not hard to stress the body. It's actually fairly easy, which is why a lot of people first take that approach when they get started. And a lot of coaches take that approach when they get started. Like, I'm just going to drive them into the ground, make them sweat and breathe really hard and sore as hell the next day. And that's going to make me a good coach. And I did that for sure. I'm ashamed to admit. But the reality is that's not why the body changes. The body is an adaptive machine. It has evolved over eons of time to adapt to its circumstances and environment. And the reason why it adapts, why fitness works, is because it's trying to find back to a homeostatic balance with its current conditions. And this goes for way more than just physical activity. This is diet. This is temperature. I mean, when I moved from Vermont here to Colorado, I moved to altitude. And for several weeks, I couldn't climb a flight of stairs without really getting red in the face and gasping for air because the air is much thinner here. And my body adapted to the altitude. Now, it didn't adapt to that because it was stressed. I would put my body under the exact same stress back in Vermont, going up Mount Mansfield or riding my bike and stuff, same stress, not getting the same adaptation. So we have to look at not stress that drives adaptation, but education. When we train, think of that word train. If you train an animal, if you train uh, even a plant, like you can train a tree to grow a certain way. What you're doing is you're not stressing it. You're just telling it, hey, I need you to develop in this way, in this direction. And it's important to recognize that your body is always developing. This is what a fundamental approach teaches us. We're always doing the things we need to do to get in shape. Our body's on autopilot in that regard. All we got to do is direct that process. It's kind of like if you're on some sort of a, a magic floating carpet and the carpet's like, well, I'm going somewhere unless you tell me where to go. And when you train, you're not trying to make anything happen. You're just saying, go over there. So when we train smarter, all we're doing is we're saying, okay, body, I need you to be able to do X. All just a little tiny bit better, more stability in the hips, get a couple more push-ups bigger range of motion in the shoulders, whatever that is, whatever that small little thing is, all we're trying to do is now teach the body because the body adapts hundred percent of the time to new information. It's hundred percent 
reliable. You give your body new information, it's going to adapt to regain homeostasis under those new circumstances, 100% of the time guaranteed. But there's never any guarantee of stress. So when we go into our workouts, we want to look at how am I teaching my body to perform better? And yes, it's going to be stressful sometimes. Yes, you're going to work a sweat and make your muscles sore and burn and stuff. That's a, a side consequence of it, but it's not the objective. And the beautiful thing is once you understand what that thing is you're going after, which is what a good coach will do, then it makes working out a hell of a lot more fun, but it also makes it a lot more efficient. So it's like, oh, I need to do X, Y, and Z. Oh, dude, I don't need to drive myself into the ground for an hour and a half. I can make that happen in 10 minutes. Oh, great. Okay. This is going to get done. And then you also have definitive, clear objectives that you're going after. So you walk out of the gym or your workout saying, I got it done. I accomplished my objective. I got, you know, higher on the, I got my chest to the bar with pull-ups today. That was my objective. I want to get a little more range chest to the bar with a pull-up. I got it three times mission accomplished. Great. And you may not be destroyed and stuff afterwards, but you know, you had an effective workout because you told your body to perform at a higher level. But if you go and just destroy yourself and you're just you know, like crawling out of the gym, you, it still could be up in the air. Like, was it effective? I don't know. You know, it's satisfying. Sure. But without knowing what that objective is and what we're trying to teach our body to do, we're largely just rolling the dice and gambling with our effort. And that's the distinction between doing, I guess, like random workouts where it's all based on perception. And as you said, chasing maximum chasing failure, chasing fatigue versus having objective and qualitative things to go for. So it's like I did 10 of this exercise last week and you're using that as the basis for the future workout. And that's going to allow the fatigue that's produced to be more productive. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's why it does work as well as it does, because it's getting right down to the natural processes of why does the body adapt? We're not trying to filter through the research and the, the noise on the internet of, okay, what makes a workout effective and what, how many sets and reps should I do and stuff? It gets right clear and hits the nail right on the head, proverbial nail again, of how do we get this done? And you have so much more clarity and simplicity in your training. I think that's the difference between, as you said, progressive calisthenics and I guess what is more mainstream with bodyweight fitness, which is like circuits based on time or just random stuff. So the distinction has to be made with what you're doing objectives and also having that progressive approach. It's fine to have things hard. You know, I'm not saying shirk away from challenge, but we want to make sure it's challenging for the right reasons. <laughs> because looking back again on all the mistakes I made, I made my workouts really, really hard. But the problem was looking back now, I was like, yeah, it was hard, but not for the right reasons. So I was A, wasting just a lot of time and energy. And B, I was missing the mark as far as the targets, like going out to, you know, a, a target shooting range and just shooting bullets randomly in the air and saying, well, I unloaded 15 clips. I guess I had a good shooting session and the target's still perfectly intact. Meanwhile, you know, you got some guy next to you who shoots three bullets straight through the bullseye and he's like, all right, work's done. Now, Matt, what I like about Red Delta Project is that you offer a real pragmatic approach to people's problems in terms of fitness. 
Can you explain this concept, which I came across on your social media some time back? Why is proof of validity not proof of necessity? Right. So this goes back to what I was saying when I started Red Delta Project. I changed my thinking from, well, what supposedly works to what is necessary. And what that did over many years was asking myself, okay, you know, X, uh, you know, uh, diet is supposed to work and stuff. Why does it work? And it was all about drilling down into that fundamental bedrock of what works. And these days, I think a lot of us get caught in the superficial waves that are battering us back and forth and stuff. And people are like, well, this study proves this method works. And this study proves that method works and stuff. And there's a lot of empowerment that comes from not really caring too much if something works, because it, it's not hard to make something work. It just needs to influence the natural fundamental processes of mother and human nature. And you can do that a million different ways. But what ends up happening a lot of times is when people position scientific evidence about a method, about a diet or a workout program, and they're like, okay, these mice did this, or these people did this, and they built 20% more muscle or whatever, there, there is a subliminal takeaway of, oh, that means I have to do that. I have to use that method. I have to do that sort of thing. And that's kind of like me saying, I drive a blue pickup truck and I got to the airport. Therefore, everybody, if you want to get to the airport, blue pickup truck, okay? It's proven. If you drive a blue pickup truck, you can get to the airport. Now that's proof of validity. That's proof that it can work, which is great. We want to know that what we're using can be a valid approach, but we give away a large degree of freedom and control when we make that jump and think, okay, if I want to get to the airport, I need a blue pickup truck. And my friend is like, I could drive you. What do you drive? I have a red Tesla. No, no, you, no, you can't do that. You can't drive me because you have a red Tesla. You need a blue. And now you're making your decisions based on correlation versus causation. And you're forcing yourself to conform to rules and principles that may not fit your mind, body, and lifestyle. So you're just making it way harder than it needs to be because you think you have to. But even though that research was proof of validity, it wasn't proof of necessity. And by recognizing, do I have to follow that diet? Do I have to have a blue pickup truck to go to the airport? And they're like, no, you need to get from where you are. You need to follow along this road and this path and turn right at Pico Street and stuff. It's like, oh, because then what you can do is look at your circumstances and recognize the resources and abilities you already have. Like, I don't have a blue pickup truck, but my friend's got a red Tesla and it's like, great, can you do X, you know, follow that route? Like, yeah, dude, I got a GPS. It'll find us a shortcut. Awesome. So now you're in more control of the process. And by breaking free of, yes, study X says diet or workout program is valid. Awesome. But that doesn't really mean much. Instead, we want to know what is necessary, which is usually not any particular method uh, to speak of. And when you know the necessary fundamental principles, then you get the freedom to basically just do what you want. I think that idea of necessity and optimal gives people a lot of unfounded stress. So just having that awareness, as you said, Matt, to be this isn't a necessity, it doesn't fit my situation, I'll do what does. Having that confidence is going to reduce the stress. It's going to help you enjoy the process. Because chances are the things that you're going to naturally align with as far as your exercise and your diet and stuff, you're going to do it more consistently. 
you're going to do it with much more like moxie and gusto. And you're going to just put more of your mind into it, more of your heart into it. You're going to be more interested in applying that approach to a higher level. This is why when I got into calisthenics, I started to get much better results. Was it because of any magic formula about calisthenics or anything? No, actually had nothing to do with calisthenics. It was simply because I really liked calisthenics training and I really got into it. And so every workout, I was putting more effort into the reps. I was paying more attention to doing it properly. I wasn't just getting through the workout like it was a chore on my to-do list and I'm doing half-assed reps and being like, okay, I'm done. Can we move on? You know, I got a dinner date kind of thing. It's you put more into it. So you're naturally going to just put more in and get more out of it where it counts. This is a hard question, but I'm going to ask you because you're an expert. How would one go about building the perfect calisthenics routine, if that's even possible? Well, first and foremost, we got to get clear on what you want to accomplish with it. So we need, we need a target to go after. Like, why are you doing calisthenics? It's one of the great things about bodyweight training is it is so vast in its scope. When I first got into calisthenics and I told people I do bodyweight training, they thought I'd do like endless jumping jacks and crunches and punt and pushups and you know, the stuff you warm up with in high school gym class or grade school gym class. And if I told people what a muscle up was, they wouldn't even know what I was talking about. Now you say, okay, I'm into calisthenics and they're thinking, oh, I do the stuff that you see on social media with the athleticism and the backflips and all that. I'm like, no, not that either. No, I don't do that either. We can apply this calisthenics stuff so many different ways for so many different objectives. So we got to get clear on what that objective is. Otherwise we'd run the risk of doing a whole lot of work, accomplishing an objective. And like, I didn't want that. I wanted this other thing. It's like, oh, uh, Shoot, darn it, we've been going about this the wrong way. So first, get clear on the objective. Second is basically getting clear on uh, your resources. So what do you have at your disposal? Do you have pull-up bars and gymnastics rings and a uh, park you can go to, or do you have just a floor and uh, a wall kind of thing? What are your skills? What can you do? So whenever I work with people, I work at a body weight gym. It's a calisthenics gym here in Denver. We always take them through a basic movement assessment of, can you reach your arms up overhead? Can you get into a deep squat? If you're on the floor, can you push yourself up without sagging? Those sorts of things. So we want to take a look at what type of skills and proficiency do you have? Because your routine has to fit what you can do uh, is basically what I'm saying. Like what are, with your resources, your schedule, your time and your skill, what can you do now? As far as just that, that's where we always start. And this is one of the biggest, not pet peeves I have, but I think a, a place where people go astray is people will ask me like, what should I do as a beginner? And I'm like, I don't know, dude, like I've had beginners be able to do pistol squats. I've had beginners who struggle to stand up out of a chair like there's no standard beginner in, in fitness. So we always start with what can you do now? And we want to make sure that we're doing a schedule routine that metaphorically lives below your means. We hear about this all the time in the financial world, live below your means. If you make $1,000, spend $800 and so on. And we want to make sure our schedule is like that because we want it to be easy to follow. We don't want to like maximize and be like, all right, I got an hour for lunch. So I'm going to spend the entire hour working out. No, man, you know, work out for half an hour, 
And then, you know, you have plenty of time to shower up and grab a bite to eat and stuff like that. So that way it's relatively easy to stick to. You're not stressing your schedule. You're not stressing your mind and your body. You want to kind of live within your means as far as your resources go. So what can you do? Where are you going? And then it's just simply, all right, what's the next step in what you can already do? If you're struggling, like I want stronger legs. Okay. Are we struggling to get out of a chair? Yeah, I can't really do that. Okay. We'll start you on a higher box and we'll start you squatting there. And okay. What's the thing that you're holding you back? Cause everybody's a little different. You could have a hundred people say, I want to build muscle and strength and I'm going to do push-ups. Great. But I'm going to tell every one of you how you're going to do it differently. Cause you need to do more push-ups. You need to do less push-ups. You need to do a bigger range of motion. I recommend you do a shorter range of motion and fix this. So it's always going to be a little bit different. This is where, again, a good coach comes into play is they can understand exactly what you need and uh, direct you in that. But it's just as simple as what's the first step and then taking it. What have you found to be the most sustainable training split for people that want to get the most return with the least amount of time spent training each week? So I break the body up into what I call my six tension chains. And it's kind of like segments of movement and the three, what I call movement chains, push, pull, and squat basically cover a lot of ground right there. So uh, I have like videos on my YouTube channel and stuff I, of a uh, micro workouts is the kind of buzzword that's out there. And a lot of these workouts are just push, pull, squat, little circuits. And you can make these exercises, whatever fits your, uh, your, your level, whatever fits your resources. But, uh, it, that those three things is what I would tell people to focus on first, because if you've got pushing, pulling, and some sort of a squatting movement pattern, you've got a lot of ground covered right there in three basic movements and we can program it different ways. We could circuit it up and give you a bit more of a cardiovascular workout. We can go with really deep, slow movements to improve mobility. We can do it with a kind of shifting and single arm and leg work for stability. We can program it a million different ways, but focusing on those three things will make the workout very concise, focused, and efficient, but also supremely effective. What are micro workouts? So micro workout, if you, if you Google the definition on, uh, online, you're going to get a different definition than what I'm going to give you. Because a lot of times you mention micro workouts to people and they think, okay, real quick circuit, um, you rush them through it, CrossFit style, and you know, it's just boom, 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 real quick and it's 10 minutes and you're done. The point of a good micro workout that I talk about is getting so focused and clear on the objective of what you're trying to accomplish in the workout that you scrub a lot of the fluff and accessory workout so you're going right after the nuts and bolts of what's going, what you want out of it. So that's really what it is. It's like, okay, you have, it's like if you're cutting, you're um, having a conversation, you're like, all right, cut the chatter. What do I need to do? X, Y, or Z, do Z. Okay, good, thanks, go. That's what a micro workout's about. It's about getting so direct and clear on what you're trying to accomplish that you just go straight after it, you get it done, and then you are done with your workout. I believe a lot of people will benefit from micro workouts because I see this natural progression map when people get into training. If they've got a good teacher or they come across a good resource, they stick to the fundamentals. They make good gains over time, but then human nature, we get bored of doing similar things over and over. Fast forward six months, a year down the track, the routine went from having four exercises 
to now it's gone eight to 10. And what I see happen so often is, especially as people experience greater time with training, they're going to get stronger, so there's more fatigue. So you can't, you can't put in the same amount of work in all of those exercises. Often I see that as a recipe for Plateau City. So your idea of micro-workouts, they shouldn't get the term micro-twisted. It's just highly focused and it'll be productive. That's a wonderful way to succinctly put it, Daniel. Well done. Cheers. Before we discussed about how when you first started calisthenics, you just thought progress was all about just adding reps, which is a good way to do it, simple. But how would you go about progressing calisthenics without adding weights? What other methods of overloading do you have? So the biggest thing to understand about the classic progressive calisthenics approach is that fundamentally, it's actually not any different than actual weightlifting. Like if you went into the gym or you had some dumbbells, because A, you're still lifting weight. It's just, you're the weight. Okay. So you're moving yourself up against gravity. It's, you're not using bands or it's not an isometric contraction. You're still taking a mass of weight and moving against the earth's gravity. Second is progression of resistance is still largely accomplished through adding weight, but you're not adding weight to your body. You're shifting weight to the working limbs. So a classic example is with the push-ups, right? So if someone's starting off and they're doing push-ups on like a kitchen counter, that angle of their body, they've got a lot of weight on their feet and they have less weight on their hands. So then they go and they go to a steeper angle uh, where they're more flat, they're, they're doing push-ups on the ottoman. What they've done to progress with that is they've literally shifted weight off their feet and onto their hands. So they now have more weight on their hands. It's the same thing as if you had a 20 pound dumbbell than a 30 pound dumbbell. I was like, I have more weight in my hands. You go to a shallower angle. I have more weight on my hands. Same exact thing. And then you get obviously down low enough and regular push-up. You could still keep going up, of course, where your feet are coming higher. So you have more weight on your hand, going more into a handstand. Or of course, anytime you split it instead of top to bottom, you go left to right. So with an archer style or shifting, I have less weight on my hand. That way I put more weight on my right hand. So again, you're adding weight to the working muscles. And that's the biggest method of progression that I use for increasing resistance for people who are getting in calisthenics, you're still adding weight. A lot of people I used to even say is like, you can't add weight with calisthenics. That's how you progress calisthenics. It's still weightlifting. You still add weight. That's still the fundamental way that we're getting stronger. It's no different than actual weightlifting. We're just using a slightly different vehicle to go about it. That's a great distinction. And what would you say would be some qualitative ways of making progressive overload. When we're looking for quantitative ways, it doesn't necessarily need to be a number and it doesn't even necessarily need to be something that is very fine grid-like, you know, quantifications. It just has to be something that says you're using roughly the same technique or resistance as before. And now you've upgraded the resistance somehow. Exactly. And it needs to be consistent in its standardization. You can do planche leans against a wall and you can use your hand distance from the wall to determine the difficulty. And if you're an adult, your hands are going to be the same size. So three and a half distance from the wall is three and a half distance. And same thing applies to, say, assisted one-arm chin-ups with a strap. If you've got it, say, two 
hands distance down on the strap, then you'll be relatively in the ballpark of the intensity that you're using. And by establishing that normal, you also become more aware subjectively of progress. I've always been a big believer that you should be able to know you're still making progress, even if you don't have an objective number quantifying it right away. I was working with a gentleman the other day who was doing, um, you know, Australian pull-ups and he's right from the get-go. He's just going after these things and I'm looking at him and he got done and he's like, man, those feel stronger. Holy smokes. And yeah, you got two more reps, but he's like, wow, that was way different than I'm used to them being. It's like, yeah. That really needs to be celebrated, just that internal awareness of how it actually feels. It's, I guess why it's not discussed so much is it's hard to compare. I can't be like, oh, today, Matt, my Australian pull-ups felt stronger than normal. You can't tell how I felt previously with, with that movement. And by the way, I like the fact that you call them Australian pull-ups, not inverted rows. <laughs> <laughs> so paying some homage to the, to the bros down under like that. Oh, yeah, man. Oh, yeah. Now, a common issue, Matt, that people have is plateauing, not making progress. What would you say is the, is the main reason? You know, we get an emotional tie to what we do and how we do it. And as humans, we have this really weird thing where we want stability and control. So that means do things roughly the same way. But at the same time, we want growth and progress, which means we have to give up some of that stability and take some risks. And so we have to have this balance. And usually when we plateau, it's because we've become a little too emotionally reserved in our quest for stability. Like, this is my routine. This is how I do it. This is the exercise. This is the sets and reps. This is all the sorts of things. And if you talk to someone who's really invested in that emotionally, and you're like, okay, we're going to do X, you often get a little bit of pushback from it. Like, oh, I, I can't do that. Like either they're like, I, I just can't do it. Or they're like, no, no, no. Doing it this many sets and reps is the optimal way to build muscle. Whatever they say, they're giving a little bit of an emotional pushback of, I don't think I can do that or don't want to do that. But when we recognize that we have an emotional attachment with progress and it's like, okay, what's next? Like every time we're training, or like, what am I trying to just do a smidge better? It could be the smallest little thing, more shoulder stability, a deeper squat, feeling more equal in your weight distribution between your squats, looking for just any sort of growth and progress and willing to kind of explore things. I always look at my training as a bit of an exploratory process where I'll be doing an exercise and I used to do this with a buddy of mine where we get together and it's like, I got an idea. Let's try doing it this way, you know, kind of thing. It's like, ah, it sounds like fun. Let's give it a shot. And it never failed. Those workouts were always the best workouts where we made the most progress just because we were kind of willing to get outside of those proverbial comfort zones and explore. I wonder if I could do that with one arm. It's like, oh, shoot, I missed it. No, no, no. You almost had it, but keep your arm in. Oh, I'll try it again. And then, you know, he would end up getting it. It's like, all right, great. Versus if he's like, oh, I can't do that sort of thing. He would never have explored that opportunity. So yes, stability is good, but we've got to lose sight of the shore if we want to explore new lands. That's a fantastic perspective because I think we get very, as you said, attached to our view of how to do something. And it's almost like if we're not making gains, we're going to keep trying to do the same thing. 
if that doesn't work, it's the classic quote, insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. But then there takes an element of humility to be like, there's a different way I could be doing it and that could be effective, which was what you're saying. So this comes to reading different resources, watching different YouTube videos, listening to different podcasts, training, as you said, with different people or not being afraid to hire a coach. I think that that is probably the quickest way to expedite that process because you've got the buy-in because you've literally paying money. So it's going to be more likely that you'll follow through with said advice. That's what I'd recommend to people. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Coaches are the ultimate shortcut. In-person coaches, preferably. You know, the internet, I, I know we've got our internet programs and remote coaching and stuff. That's great. It's wonderful. But the gold standard is in-person, seeing them in a seminar. It, the internet's really given off this false sense that you can have the same thing with an app. You know, you can do the same thing with a video coaching uh, program that you download off of YouTube and stuff. And it's just not the same uh, by any means. And I think now, especially with the COVID lockdowns and stuff being coming off and stuff, I think that's going to give us more of a perspective of just how important it is to be with people in person. I was at a social hour last night and some people there hadn't been to a party in over a year. And they're like, you know, it's just not the same as drinking wine with someone over a Zoom conference call. I'm like, you know, it's not. It's totally that way. Like, yeah, it's better than nothing. And it can be productive. But one-on-one -on -one in-person interaction is always going to be the gold standard. Now, this topic has been discussed as well on the internet. Warm-ups being a waste of time. What do you think about that? So this is the way I always tell my clients when, when I first see them. Because that's something I have a lot of flexibility with. And this is the, the way I perspective. For the objective of our workout, we already know when we walk in what we're going to do, what the objective is. That's already planned. We don't figure it out along the way. So we have the objective. And that's like at one end of the scale. When you walk into your workout, physically, mentally, emotionally, you're somewhere else on that scale. You know, maybe you're further away. Maybe you're closer. Who knows? The point of a workout is to get you from where you are to that state you need to be in to accomplish the objective of the workout, physically, mentally, and emotionally. So this is, I tell clients this because it's like, if you're here, you're kind of hungover, it's 20 below outside, you're tight, you're stiff, and we've got a workout plan where you're going to be doing circuit training. We're going to need a decent warm-up to get you all the way there, right? But at the same time, if we're coming in and we don't have like a super hard workout, a challenging workout, and you're, for whatever reason, you were helping a friend move that day, you're already physically active, and you're already here from the get-go, I don't want to put you through 20 minutes of warming up if you're ready to go in five minutes. So that's why it's always a check-in of where do I need to be? Where am I now? And then warming up appropriately to match that point. And if it takes five minutes, it takes five minutes. If it takes 20, it takes 20. But you do it again for the purpose of accomplishing the objective. You don't just go through a warm-up of I got to be on the treadmill for 10 minutes. Then I got to do these stretches. Then I got to do this foam rolling. Then I got to do X, Y, and Z and stuff. And if you don't know the objective of your warm-up, then you could do all of that, grab the pull-up bar, and you're still not prepared for it. 
But if you know the objective, then again, with like with micro workouts, clear, straightforward, you get to it a heck of a lot faster and it's a lot more effective. What is the cardio trap which makes weight management difficult? Oh, yes, the cardio trap. This is something I fell into for years, uh, again, in college, bike racing and stuff. So the cardio trap is where we effectively we do a lot of cardio or a lot of physical activity. And we're just really working a lot, primarily oftentimes just to burn a lot of calories. But then of course the body needs to regain homeostasis at some point. So we have compensation of digestive processes, compensation of food preparation, and of course, just our appetites. So then we end up eating a lot and we go and we devour an entire bread truck or just go and get thrown out of an all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet or something. But then after that, we're like, oh, shoot, I just ate a ton next day. Now I got to do a whole lot of cardio to burn it off, which keeps the cycle going. So you're effectively working out a lot because you eat a lot and you're eating a lot because you're working out a lot. And that's not necessarily a bad thing if you're working out and your training is for performance aspects. Like I've got friends who are professional mountain bikers and they're like, dude, you have any idea how much I need to eat in a day? Because my training to be at that level of performance as a mountain biker requires me to do that. So I'm training a lot. I got to eat a lot in order to train. But the cardio trap is I'm just doing it for the sake of weight management. So I'm doing cardio purely to burn calories and I'm eating because I'm doing all that cardio and it creates this vicious cycle because both the lot of cardio and the lot of eating is very costly in time and energy, high grocery bills and so on. And it creates a cycle. Plus it's something that you keep going with, but if you miss a workout, now you feel behind the eight ball. Cause it's like, I just ate a ton and I, you know, can't purge it in other words, or you have a hard workout and then uh, you know, you're in a situation where you can't eat as much and now you're starving, you're ravenous and you're tired and cranky and hangry and all that. So it puts you in a very high maintenance lifestyle just to maintain weight. But of course, fundamentally, weight management is the balance of energy throughout our body. So if you're burning 5,000 calories and eating 5,000 calories a day, like I did in college, that does the same exact thing for your weight management as burning 2,500 and eating 2,500, the balance is the same. Only up here, it's just harder to maintain. It requires a lot more resources. So by bringing it back down, and now you're no longer training to burn off calories, and you're no longer eating because you just you know, had a huge amount of physical activity, you break out of that cardio trap. Probably one of the best things I ever did in my own fitness was just take the whole calorie burn thing right off the table as far as objectives go. Like, I don't do anything for the sake of calorie burning anymore. I ride my mountain bike because I love riding my mountain bike. Makes me feel good. I do calisthenics because I love doing it. Makes me stronger. Makes me feel good. Everything is about, I want to perform better. I want to use my body in a better way. Sometimes, sure, it's just stress relief and it's just fun to do. But I almost never do anything for the sake of burning calories. And if you asked me, how many calories did you burn on that? I'd be like, um, a lot. <laughs> some, I don't, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Cause I honestly, I don't care if I need to eat more in order to sustain an increase in activity for whatever reason, then I'll just, okay, I'm hungrier. All right. Have a extra egg at breakfast and have a, a little bit more to eat throughout the day or whatever. It's something I'll, I'll adjust to naturally, but it's not a reactive thing just because I got to burn a lot of calories in order to manage my weight. That comes back to you knowing what you want, which is for most people often the hardest thing, but no one can really tell you what you want. You have to find that 
that answer yourself. That is so true. Getting clarity on what you want is one of the most empowering things you'll ever do in your life, in fitness, in life. Friends, I mean, because the second you know that, you can go after and get what you want. But you're also able to say no to the myriad of things that everyone's telling you is so important and you got to do this. And you got to like, no, no, I know yeah. that's not in line with what I want. So I'm not going to waste my resources on it. Doesn't mean it's bad. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but it's not what I want. So I can comfortably say no to it. And I don't worry about missing out. That's right. We've only got so much bandwidth, effort, attention that we can actually apply to any few set of things. So that's even more important, especially in today's day and age where we just have boundless options and opportunities for you name it. Oh, yeah. Because everyone's telling you their way is the best and the, so important. And if you're not doing X, Y, or Z, you're missing out. And the FOMO is really, really big on the internet. But it's no big deal because there's a lot of stuff out there that is awesome. But it's not going to be awesome for you. And knowing that is very, very empowering. Anytime you feel anxious or have that FOMO, just realize if there was one way to do anything, we'd all be doing it because it would be the best way. Exactly. And there's nothing wrong with, oh, they're doing X. That kind of looks cool. I wonder if that's better for me. Well, then give it a try for sure. You know, that's how I got into calisthenics. But at the same time, if you're kind of on the fence and you're like, I really don't think that's quite for me, don't worry about it because everything works for the same reason. You're going to lose weight for the same reason. You're burning more than you're consuming, regardless of what kind of diet. So any, this is where the proof of validity versus necessity comes in. You know, when they're like, okay, we got a new diet program out there. We got a new workout program. The research comes out. It's like, oh, proof of validity. Fantastic. Wonderful. This proves it works. Yes, it proves it works. And it works for the same reason everything else has worked. They didn't reinvent the wheel. It's not some hack that we figured out and how to cheat mother nature and stuff. You're losing weight. You're building muscle for the same reason everything else has. You're just using a different vehicle. And if you like that vehicle better, great. But if it's not in your wheelhouse and you're like, yeah, but it's not my thing. It's like, don't worry about it. You're not missing out on anything. Yeah. And this is the frustrating thing is what you're saying. It's all, it's all very true. But the fact is that most of what we're seeing on the surface level is the marketing side of what you just said. Oh, it's so true. So many of our beliefs about how fitness works are not based in fact or science. They're based on marketing, marketing facts, uh, the way things are portrayed. And advertisers and so on have figured this out for many years that if you want to change people's opinions and habits, all you got to do is just market it a little bit differently instead of teaching facts and information. And sometimes that's used to good effect. Uh, but other times it can be also very manipulative and to a degree propagandic and getting back down to the essence of what you want, again, gives you more of that emotional control because it takes those manipulative behaviors that you see of, oh, this is the best thing and this is awesome and wonderful. And it puts it more in perspective of what's true for you. And it gives you that kind of resiliency against so much like hype and, oh, it's the greatest thing. But also in the other direction of like, oh, don't do this. You'll kill your gains and it's the worst thing in the world. It's like, no, it's really not that bad. I'm still going to do X, Y, and Z. You're, you're fine. <laughs> what advice would you give to successfully exercise as we age? So the fit over 40. Uh, first of all, always respect pain. 
Uh, I always tell my clients, rule number one, we don't do things that hurt. Like, yeah, I know we talk about like, oh, that work hurts so bad and everything. No, that's discomfort. It's, we're just talking here. Pain is mother nature's way of telling us we're screwing something up. Something is wrong. And if we don't obey and respect that, it's going to get worse as mother nature's way of saying, hey, you really need to pay attention to this. And if you don't, I'm going to keep trying to tell you that. And so I think a big mistake a lot of people make is even some of those discomforts in the joints and stuff. And we attribute it to, ah, I'm getting older. I guess that's the way it goes. You know, wake up and you got to have a couple Advil in order to get through the day kind of stuff. And yeah, that's the, just it. It's like, uh, not necessarily. And to a degree, I think I had the advantage because I was hobbling around like an old man before I had a driver's license. I had shot knees and back and shoulders and I was beat up even as a young kid. And part of me also thought that proof of pain was proof of just being tough and macho. Like, oh, you think you got it bad? Well, I just ran 10 miles, even though my knees were killing me. And it's this ego thing, right? But pain is weakness, period. It's not something that we want to endure or have uh, any sort of like, oh, I can, I can deal with it. I can handle it and stuff. Get rid of it. Flat out. Figure out what it is. See a professional. Again, this is where coaching comes into call. And healthcare professionals, chiropractors, physical therapists. If you have an issue, get it taken care of ASAP. A lot of times, sometimes we'll just have a tweak or something and, oh, I know what this is and you'll get it taken care of. But my rule of thumb is if it hasn't gone away after a month or so, it's probably not going to go away on its own. So we want to get real about what it is. And this is something I finally took my own advice for last year. And I started seeing a chiropractor and he, I was issued my hip and all this. And I was like, I'm stretching this, I'm working this. He's like, yeah, it has nothing to do with any of that. You're wasting your time. It's like, it's all in your neck, like my neck, what the heck? And he showed me x-rays of how my spine was all kind of a little out of sorts and everything. He's like, all right, we're going to work on your neck. And I'm feeling now like, you know, healthier and more fit than I probably have in the past 20 years because I saw someone in person like this hurts. What's wrong? This is what's wrong. Here's how you fix it. Clarity going right after what you need. Don't try to figure it out for yourself. If you could have, you would have already, right? And the internet's a terrible place to try and diagnose pain. It really is. People ask me all the time, my shoulder hurts when I do pushups. What's wrong? I'm like, damn, if I know, <laughs> it could be a hundred different things. Maybe a few of these things, maybe, but I'm not sure. But we want to respect pain. We want it to teach it uh, it to teach us what's going on. And the last point I'll make on that is that exercise generally doesn't cause the pain or the problem. It's exposing it. Okay. I've had lunges ruin my knees, squats, hurt my hips, dips, busted up my shoulders, push-ups hurt my wrists. Cycling was bad for my back, but now I don't have those problems anymore because I use dips to heal my shoulder, cycling to heal my back, lunges to heal my knees. The very things that caused the problem, caused in quotes, was the very thing that I used to heal it to begin with because it was exposing the real problem. And the mistake we often make is, oh, I did lunges, it hurt my knees, I'm not gonna do lunges anymore. Okay, that's fine. And it will remedy the issue momentarily, but you didn't address why that was going on. You could have a hip imbalance, you could have weak hamstrings, a hundred different things. So that problem's still there. And it's probably going to get worse. So you go from someone who's like, I can't do lunges to it gets worse. I can't do deep squats. It gets worse. I can't do squats. 
gets worse. I can't even do the leg press. Keeps getting worse. I can't even get out of a chair. And so your sphere of capability is shrinking over the years. And maybe you'll go see someone finally, like, I can't get up out of chairs. I'm like, well, now you need knee surgery. Now you need this going on. It's like, if maybe we headed it off and like, yeah, if we had that hamstring strengthening exercise from a physical therapist 10 years ago, you may still have bulletproof knees, but we didn't heed the pain and let it teach us what was wrong to begin with. We just kind of swept it under the rug and it just kept manifesting into something that became a much bigger problem later on. So get it taken care of ASAP. And unfortunately, men at large aren't very proactive when it comes to health and injury management. We tend to want to soldier on, which, which isn't the best thing. And especially if you like training and you want to keep doing this as you age, the longevity thing is key with just avoiding injury. I feel that that's the biggest difference because over the years, I've seen many people very passionate about training, but experience a few setbacks and injuries, which as you mentioned, could have been avoided or mitigated and mended if they were addressed earlier, but they didn't do it and they started to not be able to do what they used to, keep regressing, regressing. And the saddest thing that I see is people just giving up entirely on being physically active, whatever that is. And I think it'd be such a shame to not get yourself assessed and be proactive with your your body because... We want to keep doing this until we're 60, 70, 80 years old. Oh, yeah. And, and that's the, the real sad thing, because I tell people, the older you get, the more benefit you get from your training. People are like, what? That's crazy. Like, I can't build muscle like I did when I was 20. No, but think about it this way. When you were 20 and you're a high school star football and you got stronger on the bench press, what's that going to do? Five more yards to your forward pass. Great. Wonderful. But is that really going to change your life very much? Not much. But as you get older and it becomes like, now I can actually, you know, walk all day with my grandkids and not have knee pain. Now I can travel to Europe like I've always wanted to. And I don't have to be constantly looking for a bench. Now I can wake up without back pain. Now I can just have endurance to still ski. I had a client years ago and his only thing is like, the only thing I want is keep me skiing in my seventies. That's all I want. And we made it happen. He was skiing better in his seventies than he was in his fifties. And that's why I say when we get older, it's even more valuable because the quality of life benefits we get from training are greater as we get older, not smaller versus, you know, when you're younger, it's like, okay, is 405 deadlift to a 450 really going to make that much difference in your quality of life? I would argue not that much, but having the ability to be uh, resilient and endurance and strong when you're older, that is way more valuable. But the issue here lies is the people that are listening are very passionate about their training. And the problem that they're going to face is how do I minimize my injury risk while still training hard enough to see results? So a lot of that comes down to recognizing that objective again. When we are going after, I've got to stress and break down my body. It's kind of like running at a wall full tilt and trying to stop as close as you can to the wall without hitting it. And so it's like, well, all it's going to take is one misjudgment and you're going to hit the wall and have injury. So you're essentially playing chicken with how much stress your body can handle. 
when we have an objective approach to our training and you're like, I'm trying to accomplish this objective, I'm not trying to stress my body, trying to teach my body, you're effectively saying, I'm going to still run towards that wall, but I know I'm going to stop way before I get to it because I don't need to run that far. I just need to get to this point in this way and I'll stop way before it. So you're taking that risk and greatly minimizing it while at the same time increasing your chances of getting what you want out of your workouts. What would you say are some calisthenics myths that are common that you believe are false? Uh, One, you can't adequately train your legs. Um, I got by far the best results from my calisthenics training for my legs than anything else. Uh, And a lot of it isn't so much just strength, but it's all the other qualities you have too. When I started training calisthenics, I mean, I've skied since I could walk kind of thing. And that first winter after about uh, six months of calisthenics training, I came home to my friend, Nikki, and I was all excited. I was like, oh my gosh, I can ski so well. And she's like, you've always skied well. I'm like, no, now I can really ski the way I want. Like I'm in a Warren Miller video. It's so cool. It's awesome and stuff because I built up some of those other qualities in my legs that were lacking before on the leg press. I had better stability. I had better mobility. I had the ability to really have more control and stuff which I think is woefully lacking with a lot of people in their lower body. They've got strength, but they're lacking the other things, which is why when they start doing calisthenics training, uh, they're like, oh, that's a balance exercise. That's a mobility exercise. Like, yeah, because those things are the things you're lacking. Uh, So it's inadequate for leg training. So, and that's not to say that, you know, the other stuff isn't great, but I think a lot of calisthenics athletes make the mistake of calisthenics all day long for the upper body. And then they're on the leg press for the leg day. It's like, no, leg press, great, awesome. But warm up with those lunges. We'll get some jump squats in. Still get some body weight training in for the legs to some degree. It's still incredibly valuable. And there's assets to body weight leg training. You're just not going to get any other way. You're just not going to have it. Heavy barbell back squat, awesome, wonderful, do it all day long. But you still want some of the body weight stuff. There's still elements there that you're going to gain from that, that you're not going to get the other way. Uh, second myth is you can't adequately train the lower back uh, with it because it's like, oh, there's no deadlifting. You got to do it. To that, I say, you don't want to train the lower back. Lower back is not a muscle group. It's a joint. Like joints, you don't strengthen them. You strengthen the muscles around them. And when a lot of people, they come to me, I'm like, lower back is weak. My lower back, this and that. And I'm like, you could do whatever it is until the cows come home. You're never going to strengthen your lower back because if you look at the uh, musculature on an anatomy chart, there's technically not really any such thing as a lower back muscle. And there's the quadratus lumborum. Absolutely. Sure. You could say that's a lower back muscle. And the iliocostalis has got a lot more of the muscle belly in the lower back for sure. But technically all of the stress in the back is influenced by the muscles that run along the entire length of your back. And of course your hip, your hamstrings, your glutes, your glute meat, and all that sort of thing. So that's why when people are like, you can't train your lower back. I'm like, I don't train my lower back. I train my spinal erectors. I train my glutes and my hamstrings. I train my lats. Those are your lower back muscles. So that's why I'm like, I don't worry about the lower back. I never worry about it. I don't train it directly. I want everything else above and below it. Cause you like any joint, the lower back gets stressed when when tension is going into it rather than through it. That's how a lot of joints, we have problems in the joints because stress is going into it rather than through the joint. Um, Let's see, lower back. Uh, Another one is 
basically the idea of you got to do a whole lot of reps. And that's kind of the thing you go after. We kind of covered that already with rep chasing. And probably the other thing is, like I said earlier, of you can't add weight. I'm like, what are you talking about? There's more ways to add weight with calisthenics than anything else. Because you have the progressive methods where you're adding weight to the working limbs, but you also have weighted calisthenics. That's adding weight, <laughs> you know, weight vest, dip belts, all that sort of thing. I've got so many different ways I can add weight to calisthenics training that when I got into calisthenics work, I did that exclusively for a while. Then I went into more of like what I called organic weightlifting, where I was lifting rocks and things like that. And I was like, okay, that I'm back into the weights, but I kept returning back to the calisthenics because I just found it was there were more ways to progress and get better with calisthenics than with weights. So I kept returning to it, not because I needed to force myself into bodyweight trade. It's just, I have more options here. I have more opportunity to progress here than sitting on a weight machine. For the people who are mainly focused on calisthenics, should they focus on getting bigger muscles or a stronger nervous system? Because a bigger muscle has the potential to produce more force and a more efficient and effective nervous system can better transfer force with the current body that you have. Mm -hmm. What would you say to that? I would say go with the nervous system every time uh, because your muscles are driven by your nervous system. If we look at the body kind of like a car, I know I use a lot of car analogies. If we want to upgrade our muscles, we need to always first look at the nervous system that the mind creates a signal, goes through your spinal column, that drives. So it's kind of like if you looked at a, a race car and you're like, we want this car to be faster and more powerful and have more control. Good. Let's only try to upgrade the wheels. And that's it. That's the only thing we're going to touch. That's the same thing as when you, the mentality of what am I trying to do with my muscles? The muscles are your wheels. They're where the proverbial rubber meets the road. Very important. But if you took a car and you're like, we need better performance, you look at the engine, you look at transmission, you look at the suspension, all the stuff that creates and transfers power to the wheels. So when you have that nervous system ramped up and you have that, then you can use that and apply it a million different ways. Plus, that's going to create more stability, less stress on the joints. And then you can change your programming around to, okay, we're going to really test the muscles work capacity to build bigger muscles and so on. But it always starts with that nervous system. With regard to building muscle, can you do so with isometrics? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, in fact, that's probably been one of the most effective approaches that I've used, especially for a lot of hard to hit muscles, like in my lats and stuff. Uh, when it comes to contracting a muscle, you know, it's, it's pretty simple. You got an origin and insertion point and they contract to try to pull the two together. And when they contract the muscle fibers, of course, the actin and myosin filaments, sliding filament theory, they're contracting together. And it doesn't matter if they're contracting a lot or if they're contracting just a little bit to create tension. All it knows is tension. Tension is tension. Now we could certainly extrapolate and say, well, yeah, more movement, more metabolic stress on the muscle that may have an influence in helping with hypertrophy stimuli and stuff. Absolutely great. Definitely keep some movement there, but oh yeah, definitely building isometrics. And you can see this all the time because a lot of exercise that we do, even dynamic exercise has a very strong isometric component to it. So the deadlift is a very classic example. I don't know anybody who would say the deadlift is a bad back exercise for building up the back. 
But if you look at it, there's not a lot of movement going there. You got a little bit of shoulder extension when you're coming up and stuff. You maybe some people will come in, they'll really get some scapular retraction and stuff. But by and large, you got a lot of isometric contraction going on with the deadlift, the grip, the biceps, the shoulders. So if you were like, well, you can't build it with isometrics, it's like, so the deadlift sucks for building upper body muscle then. And I don't think anybody in their right mind would ever make that case. Um, the forearms, biggest development I ever did in my forearms was when I took up rock climbing one winter. And I was like, dude, I'm turning into like Popeye here. There was no wrist curls or anything like that. I was like, just grabbing onto little toe holes and everything. And so, oh yeah, you can certainly build it. It's difficult in many cases because we don't have quite as much quantitative feedback. But I would also say that when it comes to developing that nervous system to drive the muscles for building it up, isometrics is a fantastic way to develop that neural drive. And then if you use that with the dynamic stuff, that's only going to help you. So isometrics certainly can build muscle, but if nothing else, even if we are like, I don't know, it'll definitely help improve the dynamic stuff you do to help you build muscle as well as a secondary influence. Perfect. What are you most excited about working on at the moment or future projects? Well, I got a lot of new books coming out. I'm working on right now my new suspension calisthenics book. So uh, suspension exercises have long been an obsession of mine. And there's a lot of information out there that is good. But I feel woefully like if you came to me and you're like, I just want to build muscle and strength with, you know, calisthenics and stuff. I think that using things like rings or basic suspension trainers is such a valuable asset to bodyweight training. If you came to me, you're like, I want to get in bodyweight training. What should I get? Rings or a suspension ring or something. It just get that. You'll get so much value out of it. But I feel like it's just treated as an accessory approach, an accessory type of exercise in so many disciplines. And so I'm writing this book to make it much more of like, no, this is a legitimately great thing that we should be making more of a priority in our training. Uh, I got that coming out. I got my next book after that is my general approach to progressive and weighted calisthenics. And then my third book after that will be on my fundamental approach to fitness, which has been a long time coming. I'm still doing a lot of research on that as well. Uh, so those are my big projects that I'm working on right now. And uh, just keeping on going with uh, particularly the uh, live feeds that I do. That's my probably favorite thing that I'm doing is the project of my live feed Q and A's that I host every Saturday over on my YouTube channel, where I get to chat with people and talk with them and answer questions and stuff. That's just getting better and better. And I'm doing a lot of just investment there to just make that as good as it can possibly be. Ladies and gentlemen, that's Matt from Red Delta Project. Check him out in the show notes. It was a pleasure, mate. Nice to connect with you. And um, yeah, stay in touch, all right? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dan. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks everyone for listening. Visit fitnessfaqs.com to master calisthenics and become a bodyweight pro.